49er fans, and welcome to the latest edition of the 49ers Paradise Podcast Show. Thank you all once again for tuning in. This week's show is unsponsored. If you're interested in sponsoring a 49ers Paradise Podcast Show, drop me a line at brian at 49ersparadise.cjb.net. As always, you can call into the show with local numbers from throughout the world. Just click the phone link in the top right-hand corner of the main page of 49ers Paradise. And of course, we invite your feedback to the podcast show via the forum thread that's created after the show. We have a very special show this week. We have Jerry Walker, former 49ers Public Relations Director from 1981 to 1993 on the show. Uh, Complete live, well, not live, and not really uncut because we had some technical difficulties. But it's a great interview, and I'm sure you'll all enjoy the listen. Of course, Jerry is also very involved with the website HookedOnTheNiners.com. If you haven't checked out Hooked on the Niners and the regular television program that they have, you'll definitely want to check it out. Again, that's HookedOnTheNiners.com. So without further ado, here's the interview with former 49ers PR director, Jerry Walker. If you want to tell us a little bit about Hooked on the Niners to start, that's uh, I know you're a big part of that, and uh, I know you've got your hands in a lot of different areas, but... Uh, Tell us a little bit about Hooked on the Niners. Okay, Hooked on the Niners is uh, the brainchild of Mitch Jurisic. Uh Mitch is a, a sportscaster, uh, radio and television personality uh, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And um, my my contact with Mitch, my history with Mitch goes back to uh, the days when I was the public relations director with the 49ers, and he was working for a television station in San Jose, and they had a weekly in our highlight show, he and a, a fellow named Jan Hutchins, um, who actually later became the mayor of uh, like, like Los Gatos, a, a little kind of beach community in, in the hills, actually, but kind of the closest thing to a beach community, beach community in Northern California, um, on the way to like from San Jose to Santa Cruz. And uh, Mitch came to me a, a, a year or so ago. He, Mitch has actually become fairly famous in the Bay Area and throughout California. Um, he's been doing a show called Hooked on Golf, and he and his uh, co-host John—I um, forgot John's last name. I'll think of it a little bit. But um, they have covered like golf courses and and the best holes. And okay, and I'll, I'll cut to the chase now. Hooked on the Niners basically is a television show following the Niners and sort of a roundtable atmosphere where we have uh, Mitch Jurisich and Mark Naismith and uh, Bob Marks and um, and myself, and we talk about last week's game, next week's game, the season thus far, the draft, the roster, whatever we want to talk about that night, and then um, we try to have a guest, and for example, our guests this year have included uh, Eric Davis and Dwight Hicks, Ray Wershing, um, um, Steve Bono, I think. Steve Steve Bono, thanks. I'm, thanks for the help there. Steve Bono and... Um, and several others, um, and and we hope to continue with with guests of that ilk, and um, and and it's been getting more and more fun. Now the best part about the show is this year we've also added a website to the show, and and that's great because as I mentioned, the show could only be seen in the Bay Area, where I live in San Jose. I don't get to watch the show, for example, so I go to the website and watch it on the website because we carry. Our past interviews, our past shows on the website, along with some commentary and some statistics and trivia and information about the Niners. 
Yeah, that, that's how I've been tuning in too. And uh, being obviously quite a distance away, it's uh, it's been great to interact with you on on that level, I suppose, and and the rest of the group and the the recent guests. Though, admittedly, I haven't seen the show with Eric Davis yet. Uh, came out a little late, unfortunately, this week. But uh, I know the fans are picking up on it at Forty Nineers Paradise too, which is great. Great. So I guess. Uh, you you've been involved with the team since uh, if i understand correctly 1981 when you you became the director of person of uh, public relations for the team yes um actually i was the assistant public relations director in 81 uh working for a fellow named George Heddleston who was the PR director but yeah 81 i i people always talk about Axel Reynolds and Fred Dean and Joe Montana and i always say wait a minute Jerry Walker man that's the reason that that program turned around the 49ers was we added Jerry Walker to the staff. Well, that that's the way it looks. I, I mean, you you left in '93, so they you know you you left and they won one more Super Bowl with I guess everything that you had created there, and then uh, since then, uh, maybe they need to get you back into the organization. Yeah, I don't think it was me, but I was pretty fortunate to go to work there during the glory years, and and when you say created. That, that's when you start really talking about Bill Walsh and, and, and John McVeigh because those are the guys that created what the 49ers used to be and hopefully will again someday be. You know, it, it's interesting that you mentioned John McVeigh's name because everybody mentions Bill Walsh and we know all know everything that Bill Walsh did for the NFL and the 49ers. But uh, a lot of people, when they think of the team, don't don't think of John McVeigh. What, what was interacting with him like? It was wonderful. He is actually... He is, without a doubt, an unsung hero in, in 49er annals. John McVeigh, you know, Bill Walsh on a daily basis had to coach the team, so that takes him away from uh, running running the team, running the club, running running the, the front office for several hours a day during the season. Uh, and that's when John McVeigh would be hardest at work, would be when Bill was on the practice field. John was was a key ingredient to the, all the success that the 49ers had during the 80s. So, so we were t- we were talking about uh, your involvement with the team and uh, John McVeigh as a person and his involvement with Bill Walsh and uh, the dynasty that they built. And I guess uh, you've been involved in around some amazing people. Uh, obviously, you know all the stars that took to the field: the Bill Walshes, the George Seiferts, the John McVeighs, Eddie DeBartlow, all th- all those guys. Um, is there? One person in particular from your time in the Niners that maybe sticks out in your mind is um, this is a guy who made the experience everything that it was. Wow, that's a tough question. Um, No, you know, probably there isn't one guy. People ask me if I had a favorite player. You know, I I had dozens of favorite players. It seemed like I was so fortunate that the years I was there, we had such great guys. Uh, to work with not not just athletes on the field but but great individuals, you know, Mr. DeBarlo, none of that would have been pop- would have been possible without him. Um, all that he did for all of us, and I, I could go on and on about what a wonderful guy Mr. D is. I mean, when when I first joined the 49ers, um, I, I was, it was this was all new to me. I used to work in college sports, and college sports, you know, it's every every penny counts and every penny is pinched. And people would thank you if you did something well. Like I won, I won about 50 national awards at LSU and the University of New Orleans and San Jose State for publications. And you know, athletic directors would thank me and coaches would thank me. You know, at the 49ers, if I won awards, I would get bonuses 
and thanks. And uh, Mr. D used to send my wife uh, two dozen long stem roses for Easter and our anniversary and, and her birthday. And we used to get birthday cards and, and, and uh, Christmas cards and Christmas gifts and Christmas bonuses. And I mean, he just he went out of his way to make people feel wanted and loved. Um, and and that's you know that reflected. Our success reflected that, and, and the feelings that we had as a family for one another reflected it all. That old saying, it all starts at the top. So, so he would definitely be big. You know, I, I miss Bill Walsh like crazy. It's there. There are many days when I, I I have to stop and say, wait a minute, he's gone. He's no longer with us. And it's like, wow, I can't call him for advice. I can't email him. It, it, and that's that's sad. But I, I guess I'm. I'm very lucky that I got to have the contact with Bill that I did have over the years. And John McVeigh, as I already mentioned, was a huge key to our success over the years. With and Bill used to walk around the office and, and tighten the screws a little bit and put the pressure on. I, I have to admit that <laughs> uh, he, he would he would keep people loose, but but he would put the pressure on and, and tighten things down more often than he would keep people loose. And then John would be a step or two behind him, loosening things up again. And John McVeigh used to always say. Do you like football? Uh, don't, I don't even like football. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, people would laugh because we were obviously in the football business. Um, those guys were all wonderful. George Seifert was was such a such a change from Bill. George used to always say he just wanted to make sure that the the train kept running and he didn't run it off the tracks. Um, but he was he was a good coach and and uh, at, you know at one point the winningest coach in NFL history. And a good guy to work with. He was a little bit different than Bill in that, um, that you know, Bill built it all, and, and and George sort of just kept it going. And I, and and I think sometimes George doesn't get enough enough respect along with that that respect that should be there should be more respect there for John too, John McVay. But yeah, among those people, and and, and so many great assistant coaches that we that we were fortunate to work with over the years, you know, um, Jeff Fisher, who's doing such a great job with the Tennessee Titans this year uh, was a good coach. Mike Shanahan was a good coach. Mike Holmgren was a good coach. And, and when I say good coach, I always judge people on what they do um, coaching-wise, athletic abilities, you know, the job responsibilities. But also, you got to be a good person. I mean, you can be the, a, a great, outstanding, talented athlete like Carol Owens, but if you're not a good person, it, you, you don't get on my – you don't make it into my book of good people. Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, just the names that you're you're able to rattle off. It's amazing the the impact the team has had um, on the NFL as a whole. It's like the you know, aside from the offense being you know basically what every NFL team is running these days, the number of coaches out there who have their roots with the 49ers, the number of uh, front office personnel. It, it's it's mind blowing. Even if you don't go, you know, to the tenth branch off the Bill Walsh tree, it's it's still amazing. It's amazing, and and beyond just Bill's tree, you know, you got you got you know John Gruden. I used to have a, a, a running joke with John Gruden. I'd walk through the hallways, going off to see one of the coaches about something or another, and John Gruden would be sitting on the floor, scribbling madly with a on a paper and pad whatever the coach outside that meeting room was talking about, he'd be on the, sit on the floor outside listening and writing down things with his tape recorder um, aimed in the doorway into the coach speaking. And I'd always, it's like I tripped over him and go, oh, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, coach, 
Gruden. He was just <laughs> dogging him because he wasn't really a coach at the time. But, yeah, there, I mean, that family tree, that Bill Walsh tree goes many ways with the branches and the roots. But then you also think about the way the NFLs run today is is a, a response to the way the 49ers ran things. The, the, the traveling, first-class travel and first-class staying and the way you treat your players and your coaches, that's all reflective of the way Eddie and John and Bill started things out back in 81. Well, before 81, but they started paying off in, in 81. But, you know, in 79 when they started building the program, the, the way they were treating people and the way we fly the big planes because players are larger than a normal person. And back before the 49ers, successes. Teams used to, like I saw the Seattle Seahawks team playing one time and it was an Alaska Airlines plane and I talked to one of the stewardesses who used to fly those charter flights and each player got one seat. I'm like, one seat? That's like sometimes my bad luck. I get on an airplane and I'm stuck in the middle seat between two <laughs> big guys and it's like, what the heck? Who did I stand today? But one seat. Well, our teams used to get a row. Each player had a row. You know, and, and that that. You let a guy relax and stretch out and and be comfortable traveling to a road game. He's going to play a little better than if he's all cramped up and his muscles are all jammed into a, a single seat. So it's especially when you're talking about 300-pound men, right? Exactly. <laughs> Not small guys. Exactly. I, that's why I used to like the kickers. The kickers were my size. Yeah, I, <laughs> I didn't have to look up to them to straighten my neck. No, I, when I was out at out in training camp and standing next to some of the offensive linemen, like I, I would be lucky if I come up to their armpits. It's like they yeah. they are just really large men. It, so, it doesn't look like it on a football field. I, I guess it's all relative. But when you get down there and stand next to them, it's like, oh my goodness! You know, tight ends are huge guys. Linebackers are big guys. Absolutely. It's defensive backs and sometimes wide receivers and especially the kickers and the punters that are. All still large, but almost normal size compared to. to no, I, I've been able to get my hands on a, a few scanned copies of uh, some of the older playbooks, like from 1985 and so on and so forth. And uh, you're right about the systems because I mean, Bill Walsh and those programs or, or in those playbooks literally detailed how to line up in a huddle, where each person's supposed to stand, and uh, I mean, everything was yep. so so detailed that. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's everything from bottled water, if you'll pardon the little joke there, to to how you line up to huddle to you know the catch. Yep, exactly. He, um, I was with Russ Francis this week in Las Vegas. Russ has created a new uh, company, uh, Aloha Aloha Events, and um, we're going to try to target the the Hawaiian community and the the Pacific Rim community and and try to do some events in. Hawaii and, and Las Vegas because there's a, a, a connection there. And um, Russ and I were talking, and you know, some of Bill's plays, Russ would say, would have him going 11 steps. You know, you don't just jog 12 or 15 yards; you go 11 steps and then make your cut. Bill was so precise and, and detailed with what he was doing. It's just, it's just amazing. And uh, I guess, you know, you were around uh, for the catch, and my understanding is that when uh, when Dwight Clark uh, got the ball back from the team, he, he tossed it over to you to hold for a while. Now, this, is, this is a long story, and I, I hope you have some patience, but I'll tell it to you if you want. Sure. It's, uh, I had that ball for, I had the ball, the ball from the catch I had for 10 years. Um, 81 was my first year with the team, and, and 
Dwight made the catch, and as we're coming off the field, he tossed it to me, and my my nickname, everybody in the NFL has a nickname. Nobody, you know, nobody's just Dwight Clark. He's D.C. You know, you're not, um, the only guy without a nickname, and he had some, but I can't repeat them here probably, Joe Montana was, was never just Joe. He was always Joe Montana or, or Joe Mama, uh, or Joe, you know. So he had some nicknames, but um, but usually guys are, are initials or or whatever. But so I'm Jerry Walker. Initials are J W. So everybody called me J Dub. So so we're walking off the field, and, and and Dwight says hey, J Dub, and he's asking me the ball. He said, I want to get that uh, painted up for my mantle. I want to I want to put this on my mantle as a trophy. And I said, Great. So our equipment manager back in '81 was. Um, was Chico Norton, and um, I went into the equipment room as we got into the locker room, and I said, Chico, I said, uh, here's the ball from, from Dwight's winning catch, and he wants to get it painted up for his mantle, and, and Chico, uh, what a character. I mean, he, he's, he, you could make a movie about Chico, but, but Chico says, Pard, and he used to call everybody Pard, partner Pard. They don't use the real ball back there in that factory. They got a, a whole, they got their own balls in that factory, and we just have to get the information on them, and they'll, and they'll paint a ball up for us and ship it to us. And I said, well, well, okay, fine. So I go to Dwight's locker, and, of course, because of the circumstances of the, the way the game turned out, he's just, he's just swamped with writers and media and cameras and all around his locker. And I raise the ball above my head and step up on a stool, and Dwight, D.C., hey, D.C., yeah? J-Dub what? And I said, I don't need to, we don't need to ship this ball back. They're, they've got stuff back there. I've got to just type something up and... This was a long time ago. I don't know if you even know what telecopiers are. <laughs> of course were, we do, yeah. They were before fax machines, and I, I got a telecopy of the, the information to them, and, and they'll, uh, they'll paint the ball up and, and get it to us. And, um, okay, great. So what do you want me to do with this ball? Just hold on to it, J-Dub. I said, okay. So I come in the office the next day, and I um, go, to, go to Dwight's locker, and I, I say, uh, uh, DC, last night you were, you know, you were swamped by the media, and I didn't want to bug you, but uh, here's the ball. If you remember, I've, I've just got to get some information to him, you know, the date of the game and the score and that sort of thing. They'll paint another ball and ship it to you. So uh, what do you want me to do with this ball? He said, just just hold on to it for me. I said, okay, remember, now I got it if you ever need it back. Okay. So I took it home and put it on my mantle, my bookshelf, and showed it to people, and people were handling it. I was like, I don't want everybody handling this ball, so I put it in a display case, and I was like, you know what, I don't want the sun fading it. So I put it away and, and put it in my closet. And about 10 years later, and I told you it's a long story now, <laughs> but about, about 10 years later, uh, Dwight comes in my office at the Niners, and he's working for the team now, and he started, when he started working for the team, he started, he spent time in every department, including public relations. And uh, he comes in my office and, J-Dub, yeah, can, can I talk to you? And he has a funny look on his face like something was wrong. What's wrong, Dwight? I just, I just need to ask you a favor. Sure, no problem. He shuts the door and comes and sits down. He said, I know how you, you're big at collecting things and you've got all this great artwork on your wall and, and stuff, and I, I just I, I feel like an Indian giver, but, you know, the, the, the ball? I said, Dwight, that's your ball, man. I, you need it back, you can have it back. No questions asked. I'll bring it in. Well, let me, let me tell you what I needed. He was going to have a 10-year anniversary New Year's Eve party at his restaurant, Clark's by the Bay, in Redwood City. And he wanted to put that ball up on the wall, you know, for obvious reasons. I mean, that's that's a great piece of memorabilia. And I said, Dwight, I'll bring it in tomorrow. Don't worry about it. So I bring the ball in. In the meantime, a couple people have told, uh, like, collector associations that, that they have the ball. Well, they don't have the ball. Dwight makes a catch. 
Uh, he spikes the ball. The ball boy gets it, gives, comes back over and hands it to Dwight. Dwight gives it to, the, to um, one of the managers on the sidelines, the managers ask him to hold on to it until the game's over, and gives it back to him. So I don't know who, who says they have had the ball, but they don't. I always tell people it could be like a CSI. He does have ball for fingerprints, and it's got Dwight's hands wrapped around the edges of that ball. Without a doubt, you could, you'd be able to see his handprints. But, so I come in the next day, and I bring it to him. And now there's another story, which is going to add another few minutes to this conversation, if you want me to detail it. I can let it go here, but I can tell you another story that adds on to this, if you want. Uh, I'm always interested. All right, so here we go. So I bring it in, and it's on my desk, and it's in it's in the, the original ball box that I got from um, the equipment people. I didn't want to just stick it in my closet, so I put it in a, a, a ball comes, an NFL ball comes, like, in a plastic bag in a box, um, not like you see in the stores. So I have the ball in that box on my desk, so it's, it's obvious that it's not just, like, a, a practice ball or something. It's like, what's that going there? And the equipment manager now, Chico's now retired, and the equipment manager is now Bronco Hennick. And Bronco, who was actually one of the guests on that, hooked on a Niners show this year. But Bronco comes in the office and asks me something that morning, and he sees the ball sitting on my on my uh, armoire or whatever you call that, the desk, the, the little cabinet next to the desk, and he's like, Jay Dub, what's that? And I said, hey, check this out, Bronco. You weren't with us. You were back in Cincinnati freezing your butt off losing to the Bengals. But back in 81, when Dwight made that catch, here's the ball from it. No fooling, yeah. Oh, we ought to get Dwight. We ought to, we ought to dog him. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm up for it. What do you want to do? He said, I'll be right back. So Bronco goes down to the equipment room, gets a kicker's ball from the practice ball bag, brings it up, and do you have a Sharpie? Yeah. He writes the score of the game on it and the date, writes Dwight Clark's catch on it, and we marked it. The ball's all scuffed up and marked up and everything. He said, let's go give it to him. So we go down to Dwight's office, and... Um, and Bronco and his assistant Ted Walsh are standing in the in the background where Dwight can't see him. And I go, Dwight, I got it for you, dude. J Dub, man, you're the man. And I throw him this scuffed up ball with magic marker marks all over it. And he catches it. And, oh, we let the air out of it too. But he catches it, and um, he looks at it, and he looks at me, and his eyes start tearing up. And he looks at the ball again. And he looks at me. J Dub, and I can't take it anymore. Bronco wants to continue it. I can't continue anymore. I go, Dwight, wait. Well, uh, I guess I got this part off first. She had dubbed the, the, and I said, well, Dwight, I, I had that ball at my house, and I didn't want anybody to steal it, so I put your name on it and the score of the game and the date, and, and then I didn't want my daughter, you know, she was out in the street playing with him. I didn't want her using it, so so I just, you know, stuck it away here. And he's like, well, that, thanks, man. Thanks, thanks for getting the ball back. I appreciate it. I can't do it anymore, Dwight. Here's the real ball. <laughs> I throw it to him, box and all, and he comes off from behind his desk and gets down on his knees like he, like he did as the king or the queen of all, and he goes, I'm not worthy. And he's bowing to me, I'm not worthy. <laughs> and so then Bronco and Ted come out and tell the story, and so Dwight knew that I wasn't the bad guy here. But he was ready to cry. It's amazing how much uh, a ball can mean to to somebody, but that ball yeah. obviously is... Uh... You know, a, a historic piece of, you know, football yeah, memorabilia. Yeah, and it's a dumb old football, and he's ready to cry over it, huh? <laughs> it, it's funny, though, because these days, you know, if a player catches his, uh, you know, 18 millionth touchdown or, or or what have you, the game-winning catch, that, that ball doesn't even get spiked. It gets, you know, put away in a lockbox on the sideline right away. And, exactly. you know, it, it's exactly. just amazing you know, how... I, uh, 
I, I've got another spike ball story if you want me to talk to I will, but, but back to Dwight's ball, you know, that ball, that may be the most famous ball in NFL history. It, it really could be. And uh, the story that goes with it, you know, you, you, it's amazing how things like that happen. You hear stories about, like, uh, you know, Super Bowl rings uh, being lost in couches and, you know, a football being stashed in the back of a closet for, you know, 10 years or what have you. It, it, it's amazing how such an important piece of football history can be stashed away like that. Yeah, but it was well guarded. <laughs> Absolutely, and it, and it made it back to Dwight's hands. So. Exactly. So Joe never wanted the ball, eh? Okay, well, that, my other spike ball story relates to Joe, but no, Joe, I guess I guess when you pass the ball, you give it to the receiver, right? So he, he passes it to Dwight, it was Dwight's ball then. I <laughs> Joe, guess so. Joe never, Joe never tried to claim it. You know, the Hall of Fame contacted me a couple of times and, and asked if if we would donate it. And I would, I always contacted Dwight to see what to do, and Dwight would always say, you know, just, just hang on to it. And I actually got a couple of offers to sell it, and I didn't even talk to Dwight about it. I just told the people, no, it was not for sale. Of course. But I was, I was offered some pretty good sized checks for that ball. <laughs> but that, that ball would be priceless. I don't think there could be a, a price tag you could put on that ball. I, I think you're right, and it really admirable to hold on to it because I'm sure those offers weren't uh, small chunks of change. It's a good thing the managers were taking care of me, though. <laughs> we'll have to thank Eddie D for that one, right? Exactly. So, so my other my other spike ball story, you want it or no? Yeah, I mean, uh, if you've got the time, I, I've got the years. It's actually, that ball is still sitting here. It's in my office here in San Jose, California. I probably shouldn't say that. But Joe Montana's last game is a 49er, and, and I might be a little sketchy on the details, but, but I know it's a Monday night game, I know it was a rainy day, and I know we had some sprinkles on and off during the game, and I think it was against Detroit, but I'd have to look it up in the media guide to be certain, and I probably should know before I tell the story, but I know it was a Monday night game for sure, and um, Joe throws a touchdown pass late in the game to Amp Lee, you know that name? Of course. And, and Amp Lee spikes it, and the ball comes bouncing over towards within about maybe... 10 yards of me, and I'm on the field because you, you walk as a PR director, you escort the media out of the press box, down to the field, and into the locker room when the game is over. You don't wait till the game is over. You come down the last couple of minutes. And so I'm on the field, and I see Amp spiked up the ball, and I'm like, oh, no, Amp. And he makes no no intentions of moving towards it. He goes back to the bench, and I'm like, are you kidding me? So I tell the security guard, I, I need that ball. And the security guard goes and gets the ball for me and hands it to me. The game's over, and you know people are celebrating. And you know this, as as it turns out, as predicted, it's Joe's last touchdown pass of the 49er. And um, I come in the office the next day, and and Amp comes up from the, from the locker room to see me, Mr. Walker. Yeah, Amp, how you doing, man? Good. Hey, uh, the players tell me that I screwed up last night. And I said, how's that? I know exactly what he's talking about. How's that, Amp? And he says, uh, well, I, I spiked the ball and. And I guess I shouldn't have. I probably should have held on to it because that ball that ball means something. And I said, yeah, it does. And he said, um, and I asked around if anybody knew what happened to it, and, and people said that uh, you have that ball. And I said, yes, I do. And he <laughs> said, uh, can I get it? And I said, sure, you can have it. Of course you can. I'll bring it in tomorrow. I said, you know, the way I look at it, it's, yeah, you did screw up, but, but at least you realize it and you know better, and I'll bring it into you, sure. So 
that day we had to take some pictures for some publicity pictures for somebody like a charity event or something, and we needed a football to uh, pose with the players. I think maybe it was, I think maybe we used uh, Russ Francis or, or Steve Bono, one of those guys we mentioned earlier, actually, and they posed for this picture of a charity event coming up and how the players were going to support it. And we stuck, you know, the, the player was handing the football off to the people running the event for the pictures. And um, so it's laying, I, I never gave it back to the equipment room. I just, when I was done with the pictures, I just tossed it in my chair or on my couch in my office. And um, I come in the next day and my secretary says to me, uh, hey, hey, Aunt Lee was in and he got that got that ball off your couch and uh, and, and took it. And I said, oh, really? Okay. So I bring the real ball in with me, and I'm, I'm told that story. So I put the ball uh, uh, next to my desk, and I go in the locker room, and Amp says, hey, Mr. Walker, uh, I, I, got that, I got that ball. Thanks. And I said, you're happy with it? Yeah. You didn't want to wait to, for me to come in and give it to you? No, I'm, I'm fine. Great. Thanks, Amp. So I brought the ball back home with me, and I've got it here in my office. <laughs> and have you... Uh... I guess Amp uh, hopefully isn't listening to this pod this podcast. Well, if he's listening, we can we can talk. Amp's a good guy uh, and was a pretty good little player for us and a nice kid, nice young man. And and I'll be glad to talk to him. But I think Amp thinks he has the ball. When I know for a fact that again my CSI, if we dust this for fingerprints, <laughs> Joe's fingerprints and Amp's fingerprints all over it. And a kicking ball from practice, I'm not sure if uh, whose whose toe prints would be on that ball. <laughs> It's uh, it, it's really f- interesting to think that Joe Montana's last pass as a 49er went to Amp Lee, who probably spent mo- more time returning kicks and returning punts than uh, catching passes from Joe. Yeah, interesting, huh? Uh, amazing. It's just, uh, what a ball story. It's amazing how much uh, fun telling these stories about balls can be. It's, uh, wow. <laughs> so I, I, I've got to ask, um, you... Uh, I think it was Kirk Reynolds that came in after you as uh, public relations, or was there somebody in between? There were there was a person in between. Actually, when I left, my assistant Rodney Knox uh, took over for me, and then when Rodney left, Kirk Reynolds took over for him. Rodney's now with Nike uh, up in Beaverton, Oregon, and he works with uh, the stars of the NBA and the stars of um, National Football League and Major League Baseball uh, as sort of a... Uh, he coordinates their Nike appearances and, and and projects with them, so he's um, he's doing a big time job for a big time company. But then Kirk, yeah, Kirk replaced Rodney, uh, and then Kirk was replaced by Aaron Falcon. Right, and now and now it's uh, I guess J- Jason Jenkins would be the guy, Jason or Jenkins is, Jason Jenkins is the man. Yeah. Aaron's still around and and um, has a position in the department, um, but but Jason is is, is uh, at least. Title-wise, as the PR director, yes. So, so I mean, I've had Kirk on the show before, and we talked a little bit about uh, the fiasco that unfortunately ended his time with the 49ers, that uh, video that sort of made it public that probably shouldn't have ever made it public. Exactly. Um, what What's your take, I guess? Something like that in, in your day I don't think could have happened. I don't think it would have made it out to the media. Um, is the job very different today now from what your job was back then? I think. The, I think. The, um, first of all, speaking of that video, I often will be introduced to someone. They'll say the former PR director of the Niners, and I. One of my first um, um, asterisks or one of my first accreditations is: remember now, 
I had nothing to do with videos back in the day. I, I'm not <laughs> Which Kirk usually gets a, la- a laugh out of, I guess. I don't know if it's at his expense or not, but, but yeah, you know, I think the job basically is the same, and that is take care of the players, take care of the coaches and the administrators. You're always the man in between. You're either in between the players and the coaches, the coaches and the administrators, the administrators and the players, the media and the players. You're always kind of the guy in the middle on that island, but I think the basics is the, are the same, but I think the job has probably changed dramatically with the internet and podcasts and and telephone uh, cameras and and texting and and emails and I think there's so many things that are different now today that that didn't exist when I was there that I think it's added has added so much positive to the job but I think it's added so much negative to the job too but you know that that old saying about what happens in locker room stays I mean um, Mike Singletary found out a couple of weeks ago. But that's not true anymore. Um, you know, the, the thing behind the Kirk Reynolds, I think there was a lot of politics going on. The reason that video, the video probably should have never been made in the first place. And and I I, I know that, and it, and it's probably hindsight, but it's at the same time I know for a fact that I would have never made that video in that manner. Mm-hmm. Um, that probably shouldn't have been done, and, and Kirk probably would admit to that too. But but the the worst part about it is that it got out, and it shouldn't have gotten out. It should have stayed within the family. It should have stayed within, quote-unquote, the locker room, the meeting rooms. But I think it got out for political reasons, and I have a feeling, and I don't know for sure because I was not there. I was long gone by then, but I have a feeling that Terry Donahue was involved in that in some manner or another. It, it seems like that that's most people's suspicion, so, you know. I don't think we'll ever know for sure, but it, like you say, it's unfortunate that it ever got out. Um, it, it probably, like you say, should never have been made, but it, it was obviously there to serve a purpose, and it was thought to be, you know, an okay course of action. But it, it's—I yeah, I know there were a couple of good guys that that are no longer working at the Niners that should be, because I think Kirk Reynolds was had the potential to be if he wasn't among the best PR directors in in the league. Uh, at least during his time and maybe all time, he was he's a good person and he's a, a good man and, and I think he's a good PR guy. Yeah, and, and he's landed on his feet. I know he's working uh, very closely with Steve Young and uh, Brent Jones and a few other you know former former Forty ers who obviously trust exactly. him a great deal. Exactly, and, and he wouldn't be doing that if he weren't a good guy. Absolutely. Um, so I mean, your your entire family seems to have been involved in. in in sports at one level or another. I, I understand your daughter used to work with the team or currently still does work with the team? She, she Well, she she used to. Um, um, uh, Kelly was a pretty good high school uh, athlete and um, went on to play um, basketball and softball at a small college in Southern California, Redlands University, and, and then it got too small for her and she transferred to San Jose State and ran was on the cross-country team at San Jose State. While at San Jose State, I was gone from the Niners, but Rodney, Rodney Knox, who I mentioned earlier, um, put together a class, a, a sports administration class at San Jose State, like similar to the one he had done with University of San Francisco, USF, and Kelly took that class, and um, during during the class as a, as a pupil, she um, talked to Rodney about interning with the 49ers, and and interned with Rodney, 
Um, actually, when she was at Redlands, she worked as a student assistant with the Sports Information Department, and the SID down there didn't find out for like a month that, that I was her father and that I had my PR background. And I was like, Kelly, why didn't you tell him? Well, I wanted to do it on my own. I didn't want him to hire me because who you were. I wanted to do it on my own. I was like, well, that's cool. Um, but so Rodney hired Kelly as a as an intern at, at the Niners, and she worked there and then worked on game days, Sunday game days and Monday game days in the press box. Well, for several years after that, I think four or five years, maybe longer, until this year she's decided that she needs to spend more time in real estate because of the market and uh, maybe less time having a good time on Sundays and, and spend more time at open houses. And things like Sundays. So, so she uh, went to the game yesterday and just to see people and, and uh, touch base with all her old friends and coworkers, but, but she hasn't worked the games this year, so she's gone. And I guess when I stepped down from my my uh, instant replay work with the NFL and quit going to the press box, it's going to be the end of the Walker era at Candlestick Park. It seems to have been an, an amazing era, and when you say keep it in the family, you, you've certainly managed to do that. So, I mean, it's really impressive to be able to to span the, the amount of time you did with the team and, and then to have, uh, you know, a legend uh, continue on with your daughter at the team, and, and that's that's something. So now the pressure's on Delaney Walker. <laughs> I tell everybody he's my cousin, my nephew. Is he related to you? No, he's not. He's ah. not related, but but uh, my family didn't have that athletic ability, I don't think, except for Kelly. Well, actually, my wife was a, a cheerleader and a, a gymnast before she got into coaching, so I guess she, Kelly got her athletic genes, but Delaney's quite an athlete. He's a good kid, too. Yeah, he seems to be quite an athlete, so yeah, and quite a character, too. So. Yeah, we'll claim him. <laughs> and, and I guess your your role with the instant replay is to sort of what review the decisions that are coming from the booth, or um, yeah, what what how the setup goes is that every NFL game has a four man crew up in the press box in the re- instant replay booth, and the four man crew is broken down to the assignment itself. There's a technician, and he takes care of the computer equipment. I don't know how many of your listeners or your people have um, TiVo, but it's kind of TiVo technology. It's touchscreen and TiVo. When we touch the screen to start the, the recording of the play, it actually started recording five seconds before the, the technician started the, the replay. Um, there's the replay assistant who's actually in charge of the booth. I'm not sure why he's a replay assistant other than I guess maybe he assists the officials on the field, but he's actually the boss of the booth. And then he's got a a person that travels with him that's the video operator. And so we record a play. We want to look at it. Um, we, we hand it off to the video operator, and he he uh, runs the equipment that, that jogs the play back and forth, slow motion, cues it into a certain section of the play that we want to look at or send to the field. And then the fourth guy in the booth is the communicator, and that's, that's my job responsibility. I communicate with the television people to tell them what we're looking at, the PR guys from each of the teams, the radio, if it's, uh, national radio broadcast. Um, I communicate with the officials on the field, the league office if need be, the NFL observer at the game, and um, I keep track of the, the timing of the, the review. I, I keep a running play-by-play as the game um, goes on through throughout the game. I keep down in distance and who's got the ball at what hash mark and what the play was and, and how long before, how much further to a first down and the time the play started, that sort of thing, in case we need it 
during our review we need to have a private party to refer to. Uh, but it's an it's a, it's a enjoyable job. It's a stressful job. The thing I guess I like about it compared to college football is we don't make the decisions in the booth. We try to provide as much information concerning that play so that the, the, the official, the head official, the referee, can make that call when he steps into the, the booth on the sidelines that, and, and looks at it on the monitor on that down there. So it's we supply the information, he makes the decision, so we are not to blame. <laughs> and so I guess the way things are going for the 49ers this season, they might want to hire you next year to uh, to man their booth. Well, you know what's interesting is they have hired, right about the time that Mike Singletary took over, they've hired a former official, uh, Ron Blum, who used to be a referee, and then he was an assistant, uh, one of the one of the other the assistant officials, um, on the field until this year, and and he was actually involved in games on the field this year until he took the job with the Niners, and he's their um, he's their their instant replay coach. He's their clock coach. He's uh, trying to help them with time management, game management. Very interesting. And, At, uh, and, and yes, yes, he was in the booth at Arizona. So I, I'm not. I, that's, I don't want to comment any further. <laughs> well, well, perhaps he he's got a lot on his plate, and maybe he needs uh, an assistant, and then then we wouldn't have to say see the end of the Walker uh, era. There you go. There you go. There you go. Right. To to be perfectly politically correct, right? Yeah. Uh, any take on the rest of the season? Well, you know, on our on our website, well, which we talked about a little bit, and I guess maybe I can plug here. It's um, it's actually hookedontheniners.com, and you could probably Google it if you can't if that doesn't come up right away. But our website, we uh, put together some predictions, pronostications at the beginning of the season. And I thought that the Niners might could go eight and eight this year. I thought they would finish the first half three and five, but keep building and and come back in the second half with a five and three mark and finish eight and eight. Well, I it would be awfully tough for them to finish eight and eight at this point. And and with my heart, I say it's still possible. But with my head, I I don't think so. But if if they could if they can just keep getting better, I mean they've got a, a tough road to hoe, as they say. Um, with you know games at, at Dallas and that Buffalo coming up and I mean Buffalo's been on hard times the last few weeks but still playing in that weather element in Buffalo on the road is going to be tough and you know Dallas is always going to be tough so that and Washington won't be easy coming here and they've got they've got some tough games left if they could if they could split if they could um, manage a split I think I'd be happy at, at this point. I think a lot of people would be. The season definitely didn't get going the way uh, most people were hoping. But, uh, you know, new quarterback, new coach, and uh, fresh start. And like you say, if we can split out, um, I think a lot of us would be happy with that to finish out the season. Yeah, definitely. Especially, you know, you got the Jets and Brett, and you got games at game at Miami. So it's it, it certainly won't be easy, but it's it's. I mean, anything can happen in the NFL, and it's, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. And I think Sean Hill is. I, I like J.T. O'Sullivan. I think I think he. I think he tried, and uh, but I think Sean Hill is is a is the guy, and I think that's an that was an important move to make that change, and I I think it's gonna that's gonna help. 
Yeah, he's definitely, I mean, last week he was just uh, something to watch, especially in that second quarter. That uh, was about as good a quarter as I've seen any quarterback play. So. Yeah, the, the Rams are not a good team. Don't, you know, don't don't get confused on that. But but he but you could still look bad against them, I guess, as we did kind of in the second half. Exactly. But, um, I just said we, didn't I? That's weird. I don't work for them. <laughs> um, they, I say we, and I never worked for them. So. <laughs> I guess that's the extended family, right? Exactly. I guess uh, you know I, I was a. Uh, a Redskin, they're now the Red Hawks at Miami of Ohio for for just a few years, but uh, I'm a Niner for life, I think. Absolutely. I really want to thank thank you for your time and uh, your patience. I know we had a little bit of technical difficulties, so I, I really want to thank you for that. And I know the fans are going to check out Hooked on the Niners. I know you know we plug it all we can at Forty uh, Niners Paradise because we think you guys are doing a fantastic job and keep it up and. I know uh, it's not an easy thing to get going, a, a website, a TV show, the whole bit. So anything we can do to help, we're very happy to do. And, uh, again, it's a pleasure to have you on, and I'd be more than willing to have you on again in the future. Thank you very, very much for your time. Well, I enjoyed it, and, and you know, talk about doing well. I'm, my goal is to get the 49ers website within a feature, within the 49ers game day program. <laughs> Hope people know about that. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I'm waiting to get a PDF copy from uh, from the 49ers so that I can put it up on the site. But uh, a few of the fans have definitely noticed, and uh, they sent one of them actually scanned it in and sent me a, a sort of hard to read copy. But it's uh, it's pretty special. They've been uh, a fantastic uh, fantastic bunch to me the past couple of years, especially uh, between Jason and uh, Terry Ramos has been amazing, and uh, Kristen Swartzlander. Uh, some of them have really reached out, and it, you know it, it's really special that they're looking after their fans to that degree. I think the uh, the Yorks are really starting to get it, and uh, for a long time they really weren't. So it's nice to see them coming around. Exactly. That's, I, I think that they're doing uh, maybe not all the right things, but I think they're doing a majority of all the right things the last few years. I, I agree. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Jerry. I really appreciate it again. Thank you. Good talking to you. You too. Take care. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. But the days of the 49ers had only just begun.